Hello, my friends, and welcome to the 513th episode of the Sales Podcast. I'm Wes Schaefer, the Sales Whisperer, your host. Today, we've got a fellow Texan, fellow Houstonian, fellow investment money guy. You know, that's what I did when I got out of the Air Force in 97 for a very short time. But I've stayed connected to the industry, studying what's what's what. Um, you may remember last summer, I did a review on uh, The Lords of Finance, a powerful book, quite interesting. Um, but today we're with Gil Baumgarten. Uh, Gil has written a book, um, Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. Uh, powerful concept, powerful strategies. Um, he gets into his story, but he interviewed uh, the top 100 brokers that he could find, and he asked them 25 key questions. Uh, we get into those in this interview. He gets into those uh, into the book, uh, in his book. So uh, it's a good story. Uh, he talks about you know how to build wealth. And look, we're in this to make money, right? You're in sales. You're an entrepreneur. You launch your own business to make money. Now, money is not the end goal. It is how we keep score. Okay, but with money, hopefully it's a means to an end. Hopefully it gives you the means to do other things. It gives you true freedom. It lets you invest in things that motivate you and inspire you. It helps you donate uh, to worthy causes. Uh, and hey, those causes could even be political, right? Get the right political candidates into office. Uh, to affect lasting change. So you've got to make money, right? And it's not about how much you make, but how much you keep. So we get into all of that and more. Um, speaking of money, I've got a new sponsor. You've heard me mention now the last few episodes, and I've uh, got a few more with these folks. So give me your attention for just a minute or so, and then we will get on to the interview. Vidyard is an easy-to-use yet powerful video solution that makes it simple to create videos, host them ad-free, share them with others, and track their performance. Whether you're recording a video for one person or sharing it with the world on your website, it's easy to manage your video content. The Vidyard solution is built for business. It has robust analytics, integrations with top enterprise tools like HubSpot, and customization options that answer your unique needs. Look, email isn't dead, but it sure can be boring. Use Vidyard to record and send sales videos to connect with prospects, convert opportunities, and close deals. You can put a face to your name with video. I do this. Uh, record your face, your screen, or both for prospecting videos, follow-ups, product demos, and more. Sign up for Vidyard free today by going to vidyard.com whisper. And just like all of you, the team at Vidyard can't keep up with all those promo codes on podcasts and blah, blah, blah. So they're making it easy to sign up, okay? No promo code. Just go to vidyard.com slash whisper to start using Vidyard completely free. And as a bonus, get their high conversion virtual sales playbook. Vidyard.com slash whisper. So look, people don't do business with you for one of two reasons. Either they haven't heard of you or they have. So if it's the latter, then you're in trouble. You got to fix some things, but usually it's the former. All right. So make sure people have heard of you do more video. All right. It could be just demos of your software, your solutions, uh, how your products work. And look, 
I've mentioned this before. I think I mentioned on the last episode talking about videos, how I've grown my business through video organically, right? SEO, search engine optimization. And I make, I've always made shorter videos. When I was creating the tutorials, really diving in uh, to Infusionsoft back in the day, you know, I wouldn't make these 30 minutes, an hour long videos. I made short videos. Okay, look at, look at Netflix. You know, people will binge, you know, shorter episodes. And, but they'll watch a dozen hours, you know, straight in a weekend. Uh, so if people find interest in it, They'll watch 5 or 10 or 20 of your 3 to 5-minute videos, okay? And the cumulative time could end up more than what you would have covered in a long video. But we are goal-oriented creatures. So we feel like we accomplish something with the shorter videos, okay? But we can also bounce around. We can zoom in on a, on a specific topic. That's why I would I would show very specific things. And look... There's almost no feature too small to make some content about. Uh, my wife and I are doing some things right now uh, with investing in, a, in another business. We're creating some unique structures for uh, our corporation, for LLCs. We've got a partnership with someone else. How we set up self-directed IRAs, how we set up profit sharing IRAs and 401ks. I mean, it's, it's, it's been educational to say the least. Um, and the struggle has been the people we're talking to assume we know more than we do. And they go, Oh yeah, go do this. And then you can't do this. Oh yeah. Yeah. You got to do this setting versus that setting because you're structured this way versus that way. And, and it delayed our launch. So make shorter videos. Okay. Uh, optimize them, good title, good caption, some screenshots, you know, the images, and you'll build your wealth, okay? And then you can host it with Vidyard. So there you go. Thanks for listening to this. Now let's bring on our guest. Gil Baumgarten, founder and, uh, well, author of Foolish. Oh, I love this. Foolish, how investors get worked up and worked over by the system. All the way from my adopted hometown of Houston. Welcome to the Sales Podcast. How the heck are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm doing just fine. Appreciate it. So, why did you write this book? I mean, you're you're still an insider. You're one of those guys, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Are you are you talking out of school here, man? Do you have to look over your shoulders? You know, my you my brother my my brother asked me when I first published the book whether I had bought a bulletproof vest to go with it. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I got out of the brokerage business 11 years ago, and I run a fee-only fiduciary business where it's in my best interest to tell everybody how the sausage is made mm-hmm. and how everything works, and they hire me if they want me to help them navigate that. And so that's, that's essentially how the, how the business operates. So, uh, and there's, there's a lot to be told about, about how it works and how it could be done better. Right. Yeah. So 11 years ago, so around 2010? You yeah, switched. October of 2010 was when I started my uh, fiduciary firm. Uh, how did the Great Recession of 08 contribute to you making that move? It contributed somewhat. Um, you know, at that point, I didn't feel like I had that much to lose. The market was already on the rebound, and and I knew it would come back. And um, the other impetus to that is that my 
stock options with my former employer, which one time were probably worth close to a million dollars, went to $30,000. So, you know, 97% of the market value got obliterated. Mm. And I just looked around and thought, you know, and, and frankly, I had thought about the move for more than a decade. It just really uh, dawned on me how much sense it made to go ahead and jump. And at that point in time, technology has had also changed, allowing me to buy off-the-shelf applications that would help me run my business. And so it it, it was time. And so I, I made the jump. Yeah. I mean, you talk about how the sausage is made. I mean, it's it's a dirty, ugly business behind the scenes, isn't it? Yeah, it is a dirty, ugly business. And, and it's not what clients perceive it to be, I don't believe. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I... I make my living helping clients navigate that in the way that works for them. And and the easiest way to understand it from my perception is that there's a lot of black area. There's a lot of white area in terms of what's allowed, what is totally off limits, whatever color you want to give that. But there's a giant gray area in the middle about things that maybe we should do. Could we make money at it? Should we not be in that business? Um, and so that being the case, um, the brokerage firms really want to own all of that gray area. Mm-hmm. And I want, I want the clients to own all that gray area. And the way that I operate my business and the type of strategies that we employ for our clients can help us stay in control of that gray area and make sure that clients continue to own it. Mm-hmm. How difficult is it to operate at that level, right? I mean, my, my sons and their friends, they're playing around with Bitcoin and, you know, they're putting a thousand dollars in. They're like, I got a 300% return. You know, if you've got a 10 million or a hundred million dollar portfolio, it's kind of hard to get a 300% return. Um, you know, is it, is it a lot of managed money? Like, like don't lose it, you know, or is, can you still beat, beat the markets? you know, at, at these higher valuations or or larger portfolios? I think that, um, people with a lot of money that let's take a hundred million dollar client as an example, when you really get down to it, they want two things. They want relief from the mental anguish of wondering what to do next. And more importantly than that, they want to make sure that they stay wealthy. Uh, the $100 million guy going down to $50 million is probably more problematic for him than the uh, euphoria he would feel from taking his $100 million to $150 million. He, at $100 million, he's probably already flying private. He probably owns every house that he wants to own in anywhere he wants to own it. At $50 million, he probably can't afford to fly private. He might lose you know, his $12 million house in Aspen. Uh, so the difference in lifestyle that happens from 100 million and up versus 100 million and down is very different. And people are cognizant of that. Um, they also tend to understand how they've tangled with the tax man in the past, and they tend to place more emphasis on after-tax return as opposed to so-called beating the market. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's sort of the entry level game is to try to hit the 300% rates of return because, Hey, I only got a thousand dollars at risk. You got a hundred million dollars at risk. It's a whole different ball of wax. Right. You just tend to play the game very differently. Mm-hmm. 
so this may be going down the rabbit hole, um, but like I, I've studied these markets since 90, golly, 91. Uh, I was still at the Air Force Academy and I have an older stepbrother who's savvy about this. And I'm like, hey, how do I learn about money? And he's like, buy a subscription to Money Magazine, read every episode cover to cover for a year then you'll have a foundation. I'm like, I'm 21 years old. I'm like, that's not the answer I was looking for. Right? Yeah. I was like, there's gotta be a, uh, a magic book somewhere. Just give me the short code, right? There's no short code. Yeah. Um, but a, as I have learned, uh, like accredited investors, people like that, that there are two or three or maybe four sets of rules, right? That the general public doesn't know about. Um, but like, as I watch this market right now, the government is so involved, you know, the federal reserve is so involved. I mean, are, are the deck, are the decks stacked against the little guy, especially like right now? I just feel like, I feel like something bad's coming, <laughs> but valuations are, are thrown away and it's, we're just waiting for the government to do what they're going to do. The um, I don't think the decks are stacked against the little guy. I think the little guy stacks the decks against himself. Um, rather than be patient, let their money compound, uh, control the taxes and the fees that they pay, let time percolate along and produce profits for that investor, they get in a hurry. They chase flashy objects. And I tell people, just like a fish, should never chase a flashy object. Investors get ensnared in the same problems that fish get, and they get, they get caught. And the, actually, the worst thing that could happen to somebody is they make a highly speculative bet and actually make 300% on their money. Because yeah. then they're going to try to parlay it by taking, you know, they're going to go out and sell their car and take their $25,000 and make a real bet because, hey, I know I can, I can make two or three trades and swap my car for a new Ferrari if I do this correctly. And then they blow themselves up and get completely obliterated by a risk they never saw coming. And so the little guy tends to fall into a lot bigger traps than the big guy does. And the big guy probably did that early on in his investing career and learned never to try it again. Mm-hmm. Is there a common theme or thread you see that helped, uh, let's say, first generation wealthy become wealthy? Obviously, if there's old money, you know, if we're not born into it, I was not born into money. So, um, how, but are there some common themes you've seen for those that are first generation wealthy, things that they've done that, that others can replicate or, or emulate? That's a really good question. In my book, Foolish, we talk about an experience that I had when I went into branch management with E.F. Uh, e. Hutton at that point was becoming Shearson back in 1989. And my first job as a branch manager trainee working for the divisional management of E.F. Hutton at the time was to call the 100 biggest brokers at the firm and find out what common threads they had. So there were 25 questions on my questionnaire. So I made these phone calls to these hundred guys and asked them, you know, tell me about this, tell me about that. And we isolated their success uh, down to a couple of key elements. And the one that the one characteristic that more of them shared than anything else was financial trauma as a teenager. So their, their family, uh, the dad got lost his job. They got evicted. Uh, a parent died. 
uh, any one of you know, a divorce, there any one of a number of things could prove traumatic. And the person was forced into a position, which frankly, my parents were divorced when I was 11. I had financial trauma. My mother declared bankruptcy. She supported me and my brother when we were kids and ultimately got us educated in college. But that financial trauma taught me, and I used to have this saying that I would say to myself, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I just decided that I had to figure out how money worked. I had to develop resolve. I had to develop a sense of grit. And it's essentially resilience and your ability to bounce back from setback that is really the key to the whole thing. Uh, and not, you know, not wait for somebody else to fix your problem for you, to become self-sufficient and to develop the discipline that it takes to pick yourself back up and keep at it. And that same discipline is what can make a millionaire out of, I know a, a guy who has never, he's passed away now, but he would never made more than $124,000 a, a year in his life. But he was a multi multi-millionaire at retirement because he constricted his expenses down to the point where he had a lot of money left over. You know, wealth is the sum total of money that you've never consumed. And that being the case, anybody can be wealthy if they just simply restrict their, their um, consumption down to the point that they have a residual and let that residual compound over time. Anybody can be wealthy. It just takes discipline. Come on, Gil, man. YOLO, man. You only have <laughs> once, baby. Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot, of people, a lot of people don't have a desire to be wealthy. They have a desire to be perceived as wealthy. They want the fancy car. They want the $200 sneakers. They want a latte in their hand every morning. They want all of these things. You know, maybe they can't afford that. And if they spent their money a little differently, you know, $1,000 here, $1,000 there, Compound that over 30 years at 8%, and you're talking about a million bucks. I know, man. God bless my wife. We're, we're planning a trip this weekend. So she turns 50 on Father's Day. So we got the whole family, a whole extended family. I don't know, we got like four rooms going to Palm Springs, and her brother's like, just keeps beating her up. He's like, could it be any hotter? I mean, it's going to be hot. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, there's air conditioning, and we're going to golf at 7 a.m. It's all right. Yeah. Um, but she will bring our Keurig. She's like, I'm not paying what they charge for coffee. So she'll bring, she'll pack that. She got a little bag. She travels with, she said, I'll bring my own coffee. I'm like, say, I would not consider your wife to be tight. I would consider her to be creative. She's creative. She's frugal. Uh, and you know, we needed it back in the day and now yeah. I just appreciate it. I'm like, yeah. you know what? I'm not paying that either. So let's go. I find that. I find that to be a compelling attribute. Oh yeah. And you know, she's, she has strung, she has stretched the pennies I have made over these years to put food on the table for seven kids yep. and me and her. So it's, uh, <laughs> I think that's awesome. She will find the deals. People say, you know, Hey, 26 years ago, she, she quit her day job and moved to Mississippi with me. So, um, you know, it's, uh, we made it work on one income with seven yeah, kids. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, We've only had two new cars ever, you know, yeah. one was a Tesla we bought a couple of years ago, but the, the base model yeah, and it was all the incentives, the rebates, it was cheaper than a Camry, you yeah. know, and the, the gas, we look like geniuses now gas is $4 and 50 cents out here. And yeah, you know, people are like, they're asking for my link because you yeah. get a referral link, you get free miles, you get yeah. free charging. I'm like, use my link, man. I want yeah. this thousand free miles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Oh man. Yeah. I love that. You don't want to be wealthy. You want to be perceived as wealthy. And that's, it, yeah, there's so many fakes and frauds out there, but anyway, you know, you're talking about chasing shiny objects. It's like, why, why does the physician want to invest in crypto, but the technologist wants to invest in biomedical? Like why, why don't we stay in our lanes and just yeah. invest in the things we know about? Well, that's the only chance that you would have for any actionable insights. Uh, the, the reality is that because the internet ha- processes information so quickly, the distribution curve of new information is so flat, the ability to get some angle on some other investor that they've never thought of before that would lead to a mispriced asset it's just not going to happen. You know, as people will wake up and say, you know, I think marijuana is going to be legal in all states eventually. Therefore, marijuana is a growth business. Therefore, all I have to do is buy a marijuana company and I'll just get rich. Well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, back in the day when people were thinking that, there was 100,000 people who had already had that thought at that moment and priced all of the pot stocks based on the exact same information that you had with their exact same expectation for the future. There's nothing insightful about that. And as a matter of fact, if they don't hit the growth trend that everybody had anticipated, the stocks are going to get creamed. And that's exactly what happened. Tilray was a $25 IPO and the thing was traded at 150 in the first month. And I think it went to five bucks. Anybody who thought, man, this thing is going to go to the moon and I'm going to buy this pot stock and I'm going to get rich. They just got their clock clean. And so people just misunderstood that, you know, misunderstand all the time that what they have as a thought process as the future has already been thought of by a hundred thousand other people. And the current market price already takes all those assumptions into account. There's just a whole lot better way to invest your money if long-term profits are what you're seeking, as opposed to the glory of, you know, being able to tell all your friends that you're the you know, latest crypto wizard, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lot of what we're looking for is ego reinforcement from our periodic wins. And we don't know the value of our periodic losses and how they harm our overall average. Yeah. Um, as, like, as this market evolves, I mean, it's, we're at nosebleed levels and it's like, <laughs> There seems to be no end in sight, um, but you stocks mentioned- aren't as expensive as they were in 2000 on an earnings basis. Just to put it in perspective, ah, interesting. Are they close? Uh, n- no, um, the average PE multiple. I don't. I can't quote exactly, but there were some, There were a lot of infinity PE multiples back in 2000. I think the Nasdaq traded at a PE in a, uh, above 60. And nowadays it's about half that. So I, I think those numbers are correct, but I'm not positive. Okay. Um, so you talk about grit and resolve and bouncing back. So the, these folks that they had this financial shock. So regardless of the economy, uh, that were they, are they business owners? Were they just W2 people that just lived below their means and, and socked it away in a 401k and, and, you know, did they do some side things to, to accelerate that growth? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the guy that made the $124,000 as his maximum income ever, 
uh, probably spent the majority of his prime earnings years in his 40s and 50s back in the 1960s and 70s. Um, you know, he probably was making 40 or $50,000 a year. And uh, yes, he had a side gig as a photographer. Mm-hmm. And so he would do wedding uh, weddings on the weekend. And, um, and when he goes out to dinner, he splits a meal with his wife. Uh, he finds all kinds of ways to, you know, sort of slim down his overall cost to carry and, um, you know, ended up, you know, putting a large percentage of his paycheck every month into a 401k and, you know, um, you know, became a multimillionaire mm-hmm. and it's, it's doable, uh, for the average person if they can simply, uh, have delayed gratification and we are not wired for delayed gratification. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mm-hmm. So, so when you say that 124,000 was the most he made, is that in total or is that just in his W2 job? Then he made more <clears throat> on his side. Gig? Well, he retired as a photographer, probably in his fifties. And then when, that's when he went into his prime earnings years and was probably making a hundred to 120. And then when he retired uh, in 1994, he was making 124 and, you know, was a multi multi millionaire. Mm-hmm. And never had Apple stock or Amazon or never had a story stock, some kind of a magic compounder, never a speculator, just a plotter in, you know, regular uh, investments. And, you know, that that's the key is suppression of your consumption if your income is not high or in the absence of a high income you know, become your own boss, become an entrepreneur, start your own company, figure out what's wrong with the way your employer does it and take your risks that way, uh, rather than going out and buying cryptocurrencies and hoping you can find a, a greater fool than you. Um, you know, you're a lot better off in investing in yourself, developing skills and, and taking your company's spread with you. Uh, that's, that's how you can go from being a hundred thousand a year employee to a million dollar a year employee if you own the company. So I definitely encourage people to be entrepreneurial if getting rich is what drives you. Mm-hmm. So for those that, that are, that can stay the course, I mean, is there, is there a good rule of thumb? Would you say, you know, buy an index fund, keep it simple dollar cost average and just stay with it or, or, would you say try to look at some trends, maybe do some asset reallocation <clears throat> here and there? You know, if we do get back up to 40 and 50 and 60 multiples, okay, maybe shift a little bit. I think that tactical uh, methodology will not work for most people. They may get lucky every now and then, uh, but frankly, the stock market goes up in 81% of all 12 month time periods. If you start trying to you know, bob and weave and, you know, try to do this or that, you're going to mess up the 81% and make a larger number uh, 
present a bad case for you rather than the 19% that would otherwise apply to you. Furthermore, there's tax friction from most bobbing and weaving, and people tend to overlook how long they let their cash become a drag on their performance because people who tactically allocate also have a tendency to leave extra cash sitting on the sideline as their opportunity fund, and that ends up dragging down performance over a long time period and giving someone less than a pure experience of what risk-taking would have really looked like if they would have taken all the assets they had allocable and allocating them to a risk stature. Mm-hmm. I'm just, frankly, I'm speaking from personal experience. These are the mistakes I've made in my own account. Right. And I'll also say that me and other clients who have been individual securities investors have recognized how much riskier an individual stock is versus an S&P 500 index fund. And as a countermeasure, we leave cash off to the side. This essentially requires that our individual security selections outperform because we have a cash asset sitting off to the side that has a zero return that is dragging down all of our performance when we would have been way better off to have chosen an S&P 500 index fund and gone to fully invested. Mm-hmm. Cash is not 0%. I think I, I'm getting 0.01%. So I mean, it's, it's not zero. <laughs> okay, you got me on a technicality. <laughs> I was ra- I was rounding. <laughs> then we're taxed on it. That's a capital gain. Oh my gosh, that, that just makes me sick to my stomach. Uh, what the heck is going on? Well, for the very short time I was a full blown stockbroker, I remember this guy saying, "Do you know why stockbrokers aren't rich?" I was like, "I do not know why. I thought they were." Right? He's like, "They don't believe their own bullshit." <laughs> Like, oh, that, that has stuck with me for quite a long time. <laughs> um, yeah, the industry does, uh, you know, create a situation that it benefits from. All right. of the uh, products that they create and all of the illusions of uh, insight and the like, it's, it's just not what it appears to be on the surface. Uh, and because they have a standard of care for clients, which is called suitability, Uh, As long as what they recommend is suitable, it does not have to be best. And that being the case, they build uh, their whole infrastructure is all built around suitable choices that they make a lot of money on. And they trade against clients. Uh, They do all kinds of things because it doesn't violate their suitability standard. And that being the case, it's buyer beware. So, yeah, I was... I just had this conversation with a friend of mine whose brother's in the business in New York. And it's been a little while since they were doing this, but they had a big client um, in like $50 million account and they didn't like the guy and they would trade against him. And just because they could, and they didn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. I mean, well, some, some things are, outside of the suitability suitability realm uh front running on your clients trades is generally not allowed Uh, however front running at the corporate level is allowed if the transaction occurs inside of the spread between the bid and the ask so how does that manifest i would not be able to go out early in the day and buy a hundred shares of stock 
uh, let's call it ABC company, and I buy the stock at $50 a share, and I buy it later in the day, and my clients pay $51 a share. That's that's not allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, it would also be against the rules for me to throw in a market order for my own account and then follow that with a 10,000 share market order to buy for client accounts that would drive up the price of what I had just bought. That's classic example of front running. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is allowed is for uh, the XYZ brokerage firm to have a broker drop a ticket to buy 10,000 shares for his clients and a hundredth of a second before that trade gets executed, they show that to a high frequency trading firm uh, out on the West Coast and their algorithm can run right out in front of the client and buy the stock right in front of their 10,000 share order uh, and make money. Now, that essentially is the spot that the old specialist used to be in and back in the day, the specialist made 12 and a half cents on every share. So if you were the specialist for uh, XYZ Corporation, you were making 12 and a half cents when you were facilitating a trade. Spreads nowadays are less a penny or less. And so this high frequency company makes a whole lot less money than the specialist used to. And that's contracted spreads and made liquidity in the marketplace exceptional. But you are essentially showing your hand and clients, in fact, are losing that fraction of a penny that they could have had for themselves. So it's a little bit of moral hazard. On the one hand, clients benefit from it. And that also is what has driven commissions to zero on, say, the Schwab and Fidelity platforms, because they do it too. Um, so I don't know, I kind of have a moral uh, hang up about the appropriateness of you know, uh, front running, even when it's allowed in this uh, narrow uh, distinction. Yeah. I was in the test and measurement industry for years, like fiber optic cables. And it was so eye-opening to me where big firms, exchanges, they were running their own fiber optic networks to, to get that fraction of a second yeah. uh, on a trade. And I was, yeah. that's when I realized, okay, these are the guys that are too big to fail. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they get to play by different rules. Yep. And the little guy, it, it applies to everybody. I mean, I don't care if you're doing a hundred million dollar trade or a hundred dollar trade, everybody plays by those same rules. Uh, so, you know, back to the little guy, he's, a, I think the little guy's probably never been treated better than he is right now. Uh, the system's not perfect, but um, you know, costs for everybody have come way down. Mm-hmm. So um Based on valuations, you know, you're saying the market may have some room to go, but, uh, but getting back kind of what we're talking about, just if somebody just is steady Eddie, you know, say, just, just stay the course. Uh, are, are you a fan of, of 401ks and, and when the employers match, like, I used absolutely. to like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you should at least participate to get your employers match. Um, pre-tax savings comes as a double-edged sword. On the one hand, uh, it's difficult to not see the value of deferring taxes and having the government's money sit in your account for 30 years and earn interest or growth. But on the backside of that, the government knows that they're going to outlive you and they will always force you into taking that money as ordinary income. And there's a differential tax law 
based on capital gains versus ordinary income, I could easily draw an illustration of someone who is, say, the owner of the company who should never participate in his 401k because he'd be way better off just to own the stock of the company outright, which would be tax deferred as long as he never sold it. There wouldn't be any income taxes if it never paid a dividend, and it would be tax-free when he died and left it to his wife. Uh, So a 401k is not nearly as powerful as that, and hence that's why Mr. Biden wants to change that tax rule, uh, and I say good luck with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the powers that be have a lot of power, don't they? Yes, they do. Uh, so, so the average person though, uh, you know, 401k, let them match. Should they try to reallocate here and there, just buy an index fund and let it ride, you know, 10 years and, and look at it when they change companies? The answer to that question lies in how those people respond in the face of bad news. When their accounts have already lost 27% of their market value, are they then in reallocating? Well, if they are, they better be reallocating to the riskiest strategy. If they're in reallocating to the lowest risk strategy because they just got blown out of their saddle, that's the person that's going to get themselves in trouble. You cannot be reactionary. You have to be proactive. And proactive is to lean into risk in the face of risk. And the reason why is that minimum prices occur at the point of maximum uncertainty. If you are certain about the, what the future holds, I guarantee you, you're overpaying for that asset class. If high, cert, high degrees of certainty cause very high prices, high degrees of uncertainty cause very low prices. Back in March of last year, prices were falling through the floor and that's when we had a point of maximum uncertainty and the S&P has jumped 70% since then. Uh, if you are leaning into that in the times of maximum uncertainty, you will be very wealthy if you do that over time. That's why we always buy the dips. So in my own account, I'm 62. I could have retired years ago. I work because I like to work. And so that being the case, I'm still in accumulation mode. I'm not trying to protect my assets. I'm not trying to prepare for retirement. So my goals and objectives are different maybe than the typical 62-year-old. But you do not want to find out on the, uh, the day after a 25% market decline that suddenly you don't have the tolerance for it. You should have decided that before it ever occurred because you're not going to be able to anticipate what to do next. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you talk about reallocation, if somebody starts out their allocation as 20% in the bond market and 80% in stocks, and then stocks double and double and double over 20 or 30 years, you're going to get pretty close to being 100% invested in stocks just because your bonds are going to get averaged out of the equation. If that person doesn't have the tolerance to give some of that money back because stocks are volatile, they should be perpetually rebalancing to make sure that they never find themselves blown back on their heels. Mm-hmm. Can the average third-party administrator at a company, though, give them that kind of advice? Oh, absolutely not. They're not allowed to. Uh, Third-party administrators in in 401ks are not allowed to give investment advice. Um, So you have to deal with a wealth management advisor if you want advice and have that person comment about what 
types of investments that are offered in your 401k would be appropriate given the risk level that has been described and the portfolio that you have built separate and apart from your 401k and your overall liquidity, your overall debt level. Um, what I find to be a crazy thing is that people will let their credit card balance run up and they're paying 18% to their credit card company because it's easy to ignore our debit balances. And then they'll turn around and leave cash either in a savings account or they'll have it in the bond market earning 2%. Well, my gosh, if you would have sold your bond holdings and used it to pay down your credit card debt, you could have saved 16 percentage points. Those are the kind of things that people don't always look at. And frankly, many people engage in a pattern of behavior that is self-deceiving because they can avoid watching their debits and they look at their $10,000 in their brokerage account uh, and they feel rich. Well, when you just went out and bought a new car and you owe $20,000 on it, you still got a negative net worth. Uh, Don't feel too good about that $10,000 merely because you've deceived yourself into believing that you're suddenly rich. Uh, You're just using selective uh, um, scrutiny. Yeah. So what's that, that average employee to do? I mean, can they hire a wealth advisor like on a, on an hourly basis or once a quarter, once a year? Well, you know, there, there, that's, therein lies the problem. You know, uh, people like me with a billion dollars of client money and 200 clients and our average clients got five and a half million dollars with us. Uh, you know, somebody walks in the door with $10,000 to invest. I'm not going to spend 30 seconds with that person. It just is not in my business model. Yep. And so uh, I think doing business with a, a new broker who's looking for clients, uh, you know, you find somebody that you trust. And even though you're not going to get as good a deal from that person as you would from somebody like me, who's kind of an institutional sort of an operator, uh, that's better than not having any advice at all. Uh, so uh, overpaying for a little bit of financial advice through commissions that might be too high is certainly a great way to access some other information that could help that person get on a path to, to a better overall financial outcome. So I don't want to belittle the value of the brokerage community. I just don't think it's particularly competitive with the advice only and fee only portion of the community, but there's a large barrier to entry because we pretty much have a $5 million minimum. Right. Well, and that's what's tough. That's what I learned when I was a stockbroker. It's like, I didn't know anything, you know, I yeah. passed my series seven and my 65 and I didn't know anything. I certainly didn't know how the markets were trending. I knew what management was pushing me to sell. Yeah. Um, and I had to sell to make commission to put food on the table. Yeah. You know, yeah. I didn't have the time or the wisdom, you know, at 27 years old to right. tell somebody, give them any, any good advice. Yeah. <laughs> Just uh, some, some good, some good advice along these lines could also come from a CPA. So yeah. it's not only the financial advisors that have products to sell uh, that would be a source of good information. And frankly, some of the best things that somebody can do are the simplest things that they could do. If they understand, you know, what equity returns are over time. If they understand how to keep the tax man at bay, which a CPA can tell you, uh, focus on very inexpensive products and focus on risk exposure that you'd never take your foot off the accelerator. 
um, that, that's going to be a very profitable strategy over the long haul and anybody can do it. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And uh, your book is going to, at a minimum, give them a little insight. So at least say, well, like the old adage, right? If, if you're sitting at the table, at the poker table, and you don't know who the chump is, it's you. That's right. Right? Yeah, the, the book least. drives a lot of that home. And frankly, if people were to read the book, they'd have, a, I think, a very good understanding of what a path, uh, a good path could be. And um, so yeah, my book is called Foolish and the uh, subtitle is How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. It's a number one seller on, you know, bestseller on Amazon. Uh, people can also log on to my website. My firm is called Segment Wealth Management. That's segmentwm.com. You can go there to my blog. People can sign up for a free blog post. We don't charge anything for it. Uh, we don't solicit business from that. Nobody gets emails from us other than just the informational newsletters that we send out periodically about, did you know about interest rates? Do you know about how sales loads works? Do you know? So it's basically, it's a new topic all the time. So people can go there and, and sign up for that for free and you know probably get a pretty good education over time about what the do's and don'ts are. Mm-hmm. All right. I got that pulled up. I will link to that. And uh, we're linking to your book. Um, and I get to Houston about once a year. I will I'll give you a holler. That'd be great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, man. Have a great day. Take care. I know I say it all the time, but some good stuff. huh? Don't get in a hurry. Don't chase shiny objects. Uh, what did he say there? You know, be proactive. Uh, where did he say? He had a good line. I'm looking at my notes. Um, you know, the little guy stacks the deck against themselves. Um, what else? The worst thing is to win on a risky bet and parlay it only to lose. <laughs> Amen. So many, you know, one hit wonders think they're just geniuses and, and they were just lucky. Um, grit, resolve, bounce back. Uh, you don't want to be wealthy. You want to be perceived as wealthy. Um, Man, just good stuff. Wealth is the sum total of the money you don't consume. Man, man. I hope you got a lot out of that. I did. I, uh, you know, I love being able to talk to these people and just really get inside their heads and, you know, ask the questions that I have, um, you know, and, and having some experience in this industry that, um, you know, his stuff resonated. So uh, I will buy him a beer or an expensive scotch. Next time I'm in Houston, go out and uh, see him because it's uh, some good stuff. So check out his book, Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. Get my book while you're at it, The Sales Whisperer Way. Go to 79stories.info. You can get yourself a signed copy. All right. It'll sign, be signed by little old me. Um, and you get that as a bonus when you join the Sell More of Everything group. SellMoreOfEverything.com Come join. Come grow. It's affordable. Invest in yourself. It's been uh, my best investment ever. Investing in myself. The times I got in trouble was when I handed over the reins to someone else thinking they had a secret, an edge, something I didn't know or have or could do. Invest in yourself, okay? 
sellmoreofeverything.com. Thanks for listening. I'll go sell something. <laughs>